Welcome to Where Wine Takes You, a podcast where we share our love for wine, the stories behind it, the people behind it, the stories from it, and with a special focus and even an admiration of a place on earth where the soil, the climate, the people, and the culture all meet to make a world-class wine region that is taking bigger risks, making wider strides, and doing it with more character and personality than any place I know. Paso Robles Wine Country. Thanks for joining us. I am your host, Adam Montiel. Well, we are getting closer and closer to Wine Fest. It is coming up soon, Saturday, May 21st. All new features this year. I cannot wait to share with you more. I'm going to give you the lowdown right after our conversation today. A conversation that I am very excited about. Today, we have one new friend and one friend that we have had on the pod before. When we first had on Anthony Yunt, Back in episode 28, it was the first time I met him. We had him on with Amy Butler. Anthony is a tremendously talented winemaker, great guy, and I love that I've gotten to know him more and more since our first episode we've had him on. He's the winemaker for Denner Vineyards, among more, as well as his own brand that he has with his wife, Hillary, called Royal Nunsuch Farm. One of the brands that we mentioned in our first conversation with him that he makes the wine for is called Six Mile Bridge specializing in cabs and Bordeaux blends. This brand has quickly risen in popularity here due to its quality and the team behind it. Atop of that team is owner Jim Maroney. Now, Jim has another story of someone seeing so much potential in Paso. And while he feels so lucky to have found Paso, we are lucky he decided to bring his passions here. First, Anthony makes the wine, so they are just unbelievable. And the story how Jim found Anthony as well as why Anthony said yes to the gig, is pretty exciting. Also exciting is Jim's history. Jim Maroney is regarded as a national media industry leader in the transformation of newspapers from a journalism and business model that relied on print, look at where digital has gone, diverse revenue streams. Jim was a leader and on the tip of all of this. He elevated in the news and print business until he was chairman and CEO of the Dallas Morning News. Under his tenure, The news won Pulitzer Prizes in 04, 06, 2010. Jim was even named Publisher of the Year by editor and publisher. And I'm so curious to know what he brought from that life into this one and where in that journey starting a winery even happened. And like the last episode with Bill Armstrong and NFL Ravens wide receiver James Prochet, there will be some other breadcrumbs of interest to pick up along the way that led them to where wine has taken them. I show up to Jim's home in Paso, just a beautiful ride up Peachy Canyon Road. I'm greeted by Rosie Behrens, a friend of mine who I've known fondly for years while she was at other wineries in Paso. And I thought to myself, wow, these folks got Rosie? Like, that's pretty cool. They're pretty lucky. I sit down and Jim's got an array of Six Mile Bridge wines to taste. Anthony was kind enough to bring some of his Royal Nunsuch Farm and Canero wines to try. And Jim brought out an almost 30-year-old bottle of Chateau Cheval Blanc from saint Emilion to illustrate what he likes about Bordeaux wines and what made him want to make them here in Paso. So a little old world background, the Bordeaux region of France has been cultivating wine grapes for thousands of years. I was lucky enough to tape several different Cork Dorks episodes in Bordeaux. We went up and down the river and the place is absolutely amazing. The rolling hills and the vineyards and the sights of saint Emilion literally can choke you up. They're so beautiful. It is an unbelievable place. Ancient Roman ruins litter the vineyards from St. Emilion to graves, where the art of blending Bordeaux varietals has been practiced and perfected over a very long and rich history. Bordeaux's climate, terroir, soils, though varied, provide the optimal growing conditions for the red grape varietals planted in this region. And yes, Bordeaux has the history by all accounts, but Paso can do some things even Bordeaux can't. So it's fun to see someone with such a love for these old world wines, but a heart for Paso's fingerprint on them today. We come in, we're chatting about live music, and Jim is uh, talking about seeing the Rolling Stones live. Give me that moonshine, we'll get by, we pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. And they were doing this weird thing where they would play a big stadium 
and then they'd play like a 2,000-person hall. This is the height of the Stones, right? And, you know, what Jack, I don't know what he was doing. So they did the uh, New Orleans Superdome, and they came to Fort Worth and played like a 2,000-person venue. And we had tickets that were on about the sixth row. Uh, right out where Jagger would come out on his, you know, the flanks Catwalk out. Thing, yeah, yeah. And he, but, but the sound was so, three days, three days my, my ears rang. Because you hit, they, I don't know, sure they took the sound way down from, but they had really too much sound. Yeah. Because we were in this small place. And at some people. point you can't, it can't, it overmodulates, it, you it, can't yeah. enjoy it. No, no, exactly. But it was still a cool show. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that alone, you know, cost me a good part of my hearing. There's just no yeah. doubt. <laughs> that I'd show. say Led Zeppelin probably after that, the Who a lot. You saw definitely. Led Zeppelin? Oh, yeah. Wow. When did you see them? I was, uh, that would be in 1975. What was that show like? Like, What do you take uh, away from that show now? Well, what I take away from that show, though, really was a guy in front of us who the entire show goes after every song was over he go heartbreaker and he did it literally every single song and thank god at least with the first encore they came out and played heartbreaker this guy would shut the fuck up i mean it was it, but but it was they they were you know they were incredible yeah they, they were it was just interesting to you know i was young even young then you know i was so young i couldn't drive yeah. Really? Yeah. All right. All right. Cheers. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for allowing us uh, up at the crib, the Jim Maroney crib. Here we are. <laughs> thanks for coming up. Yeah. Hey, easy on me. No, no, it's all good. I mean, because you spend, uh, you were, I mean, you, were, you go back and forth from Texas to here. Yes. And you obviously, you're in Texas. Yep. And you're just, you're coming home for, how long are you staying? Well, this time we're just here till uh, Monday, but we normally come for about uh, five or six weeks when we do, and we do long stays and we drive and we bring our dogs now down to one dog from three dogs since we've been coming here. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, we drive and then we're here for five or six weeks and then we drive back. So this is a short trip. So thanks for yeah. making time. This is really oh, cool. I love it. Also, Anthony's here. Anthony's back on the pod. Thank you. I love thanks him, for man. having me. We got a lot of great feedback. He was on with Amy Butler before. We were talking about consulting winemaking and just the whole thing. And, and it's funny because ever since that episode, I feel like you're one of the names that, I mean, just people bring up for one reason or another here or there. So your name's been dropped on this pod, you know, several times since we last hung. And all good thanks. things. Thanks, all thanks good for things. beating the drum. <laughs> Putting it out there. Yeah. How you been? What, this time of year, like what's going on with you? How busy are you? What's up? So we're actually blending the Six Mile Bridge blends right now. We just finished kind of the whole rosé and white wine bottling over the last two months. Um, so this starts sort of blending season for us. So we're physically blending wines from 20 from the Six Mile Bridge project. We're starting to blend 21s of some of the Rhone wines that we make. Um, so it, it never slows down. Bud break happened two yeah. days ago. Did it? So yeah, vineyards, um, Merlot's popping here yeah. at Six Mile, Grenache at our own place. So, you know, things are going to start ramping up in the vineyard. Six Mile does a Merlot, right? Does it? Yeah, we do a Merlot. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, based blend. Based blend. blend. Yeah, we don't yeah. do a Merlot Merlot. Would you ever consider one? <laughs> it's, it's like he. It's like he knew. <laughs> do, you want, do you want? Do you want me to? But we do it now. Or no, we, got, we do it right now. Let's do it right now. Okay. So so. I really like Merlot, and yeah. I like right bank Bordeaux wines, more Merlot-driven, right? You think I need an Osso for that? Uh, I think you need an Osso for that. You want to get one? I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grab it. I'll vamp till you get back. Right, yeah. And so I wanted to plant, well, we wanted to plant all the main Bordeaux varietals here, which we did. Um, but obviously some Merlot, and we put it out here on the north-facing side. It's always the first one to but break, first one to, uh, of the reds that we harvest. But uh, I really, you know, kind of thought that Merlot got a bad rap back with Sideways, sideways. sure. Yeah. yeah. And so I've been thinking more and more about what we could do with Merlot. So in 2019... Bring sexy back, right? Yeah, we're going to bring sexy back. We're going to bring elegant back. We're going to bring, you know, soft, you know, really elegant tannins. And so next year in September, we'll release two wines. Instead of the cuvee, which we have here today, we're going to break that into two different wines. One's going to be what we're going to call left bank and one be right bank. Six Mile Bridge, right here on the map. On its left side is a town called Shannon. On the right side is a town called Limerick. So we're going to name them Shannon and Limerick. Six Mile Bridge is in Ireland, the town from which this name comes. And we'll have a Merlot-led uh, cuvee that uh, really will express that uh, 
Merlot, which we really haven't done. We haven't really kind of put it forward. It's been a great blender and different things. But what I told Anthony right when he walked in, so you kind of just got all the way here, was I had a bottle, the first bottle of the Limerick that I've had, and it was everything that I hoped it would be. It was integrated, balanced, but the tannins were silky, and, and it was elegant, and it was just a beautiful wine. Whereas some of our wines that are more cabalette are a little bigger, you know, they're a little, little brawnier in places. Uh, so really like that. But today we thought the, because we were going to talk about this, and you jumped into it, if you know one of the things, the little insides on uh, Sideways, if you're not a wine geek, all the wine geeks know it, you know, they diss Merlot, right? And then what do they do? at the very end they have a bottle of Chevelle Blanc a right bank Bordeaux which is usually a hundred percent if not to 190 percent Merlot so they end the movie with a little bit of a almost a kind of pulling back Merlot but most people don't know that Chevelle Blanc is a, a Merlot is a right bank Merlot yeah, right. yeah right 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 and so we thought we would bring it out today because we we're going to talk about mention that we really want to start expressing more Merlot here and in 20 20 let's see if we do this year so 2025 will be the 20th anniversary wow. of I believe of Sideways and so our wines that we we blend, make, you know, harvest this year and so forth will be released in 2025 and we'll have maybe some special uh, Merlot-driven, maybe Merlot single varietal wine. Should we try this 93 Cheval Blanc? Yeah, we absolutely should. Let's do that. Yeah, okay. I just used an also to pull this cork so that I didn't break it. Right. And the, the label's relatively stained here i think that looking, also it's stained because that's probably not, somebody that hated merlot this, and they pour they yeah. they they, they, <laughs> rue, they try to desecrate it but look right. at that cork i mean it, did, cork. it didn't come from the wine the, no the wow. cork is just perfect yeah. and this is looks uh, a little 93 brown. vintage so looks a little brown coming out almost think? almost 30 years mm. let's see oh, yeah see, little structure's really not there a little brown a little raisiny maybe Kind of, I'm not sure this one's held up. I think give it time. Yeah. All right. Let's see. We'll give it a little time. See if it first out. So I kind of want to talk about, before Y-Pass, so just um, your, your background uh, in media and print. I mean, it's, it's a really exciting story. I'm kind of really excited to share it with folks. <laughs> well, I'll do this very quickly. I spent the first part of my career in broadcast television, news-based television stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, a few Fox, all around the United States from Seattle to Dallas to Norfolk, Virginia, and St. Louis, Missouri, and other places. I really loved... Uh, a news-based uh, business because you're really doing something that you feel is important and is purposeful and it, and it can help the community you're in. I mean, when you're doing really, we were doing what I would call very important and serious journalism. We weren't chasing ambulances and car wrecks and these things. This was, was meant to be serious journalism. And you were an anchor? No, no, no. You were I, in, I, in leadership? I was in leadership. I was in leadership wow. and so you, you uh, ran station, then more stations, and then eventually ran our group of TV stations. We had wow. about 17 across the U.S. Then um, I uh, ended up doing a little corporate stint, uh, which I felt like you were sort of asking Luke Skywalker to go to be Darth Vader. And yeah. I, I went to the dark side for a little while. And then, uh, then they asked me to take our TV stations and our newspapers and put them online in 1997. So the word internet was barely even known. The TV stations, their entire website was a PDF of their anchor people with a little blurb by them. I mean, that was it. And uh, so I did that and started a company called Below Interactive, which was our, our main company. And then, uh, and then for reasons I'm still not sure, they wanted me to come and be the publisher of the Dallas Morning News for a little bit of time, and they wanted me to fix the accounting, no, fix the accounting department and fix the sales department. And that's about the time that newspapers started having their death spiral. Yeah. Um, in comes uh, Monster, and it basically disintermediates the uh, classified uh, want ad section in a paper, which was very, very profitable, and the rest is sort of history. But I did that. And, is that uh, where papers made a lot of their money, most of their money? <sighs> well, they made a lot of money on regular advertising, sure. but your employment section, your automotive section, and your real estate section, 
you were printing nothing but ads. There was no news, right? Right. And, and so they had a 90% margin, and they would have twice as many pages as the rest of the paper newspaper had, and they were highly profitable, so they drove lots of revenue and very profitable revenue. And when Monster came in and took out the employment sections, and then slowly but surely all the automotive online sites came in, the real estate uh, online sites came on, they could put more information at no cost, free, online, da-da-da-da. squeezing print was, out. Yeah, squeezing print out. You know, it's interesting because there was an article. It had a memo that you wrote to your people about clicks and stuff. And I, that, that transition from print into, like, websites. And, yeah. and one of the pieces of the memo is, like, it's, it's not just good as a click. I mean, you know, we got to get deeper than that, yeah. you know? Um, what was that transition like? And was it almost... Because, look, being in an industry like radio, I've had people ask me, when Napster came out, is radio done? When yep. MP3 players came out, when... Uh, I iPods, but you know, radio is still doing its thing. Albeit, it has changed, you know. Yep, yep. But um, but print has seen a lot of transitions and changes, and like we said, the squeeze. Yep. A lot of a lot of the traditional newspaper people, you know, they 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 were just holding on tightly to that print, and they didn't want to let go, and they didn't want to really see what was going to happen on the web. They didn't want the company to really invest in it. They didn't want to really support it. I remember when. I said, we're going to put a registration up on our website. And it really wasn't being done. But I said, I want all the information on the customer. And they had to fill out like a, you know, 20 question survey. And then we could use that to sell advertising. But they couldn't get on the site without it, right? And both my team, but particularly the newspaper people were like, you know, some of them were saying, well, you're going to kill the website. Other ones saying, Go ahead and do that because you're going to kill the website. Sure. You know, you know by, by asking people to register, they will not do that and they'll go away. Well, they didn't. They took time to fill out a registration. This was way back in the day. You got to remember this is 1999. People weren't worried about giving out their information. Right. And it became a very profitable way for us to sell ads because I could tell people – you know what? Well, this person likes to go see movies, and this person likes to drive uh, a Buick, and this person, you know, likes to uh, water ski, whatever it was. And I could go to those advertisers. That was really good. Uh, I think the biggest transition came though from getting away from ads because you couldn't make money digitally with ads at the scale that a, a, a hometown newspaper, even as big as Dallas, had. Yeah, and that was the point of your memo. Yeah, and going to subscriptions. Right. And so, in uh, right at the time of the end of the world 2008-9 and the you know uh, great recession I again told our team that we were going to raise the price of the newspaper by 50% to everybody and 100% to people who lived out uh, 100 miles out from the center of Dallas. Do they think you're crazy? Oh yeah and my my newspaper friends did that sort of commercial that old commercial uh, uh, let's get Mikey to do it yeah. you know and then and by the, and they'd say hey and so when you do that call me and tell me how that worked out Did you have to sell that to a board or anything Um I did and I think because things were so desperate in a way Yeah it was sort of like well a the economy's dead newspapers yeah. are in a downward spiral I mean what the hell do you have to lose and we raised the price by 50% and 100% and lost about 14% of their subscribers, which is a huge operating leverage up in, uh, in our profits. Uh, so it, it turned out to be a good thing. And now wow. today, as you probably know, subscription for digital has kind of been the route. Yeah. To, uh, is print dead? Print isn't dead, but it is slowly finding the bottom. I think there'll be print around, but it's probably going to be Sunday. Is it like, uh, is it like the, well, the last one here, turn the light out kind of thing? Yeah, but I, I still think you'll probably see a Sunday paper. But when the boomers are gone, uh, and I mean gone. You're right. <laughs> gone, gone. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll quit doing it, and it may come sooner than that. But right now, there's still plenty of seven-day newspapers, print papers, a lot lower circulation. But they're around, and they still yeah. make economic sense For to sure. put out because... You keep the price of it still going. Oh, when up. I when I make the paper, as long as it's for a good reason, I always like to go get a copy of it or two. You know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. like going the, the paper is the paper, paper. Yeah. the newspaper. What about like? Let me one more question. What about like Web three o? Do you yeah. see opportunities there? You seem like you're probably already on the tip of this. Well, you know uh, what I what I see is that the the for if you're talking about for the media side now, yeah. it it really is just going to be a matter of understanding what each individual wants and serving that individual what it is they want of your whole you know menu of things to give them so that they will subscribe and continue to subscribe because it, and this is a point that is really important 
you have to give them something they can't get anywhere else. So if you start turning your paper, which a lot of newspapers have, they conglomerate, they're owned by big companies, and now you get these regional papers where there's about, you know, two things about your local town and 12 things about your region, people don't care about the region. They care about their hometown, and nobody's covering the hometown except you. So if you start trying to lower your cost by bringing in stories that have been written in other places, like wire stories, you're going to lose. You've got to give them things they want to know they can't get anywhere else, and that's what really good local reporting does. Yeah, Those papers that do that will last a lot longer than the ones that begin to commoditize what they put in their paper. They can get it a lot of other places. The ones that are owned there or the ones that, I mean, can you do it successfully? Like, can a McClatchy do it successfully? It feels like they're all farmed out and just feel the same way. It's just a McClatchy here and slow. Well, you know, I know the guy that took over the McClatchy company, Tony Hunter, and uh, he's he understands how to get it done if he can take what was left when he got there yeah. and then migrate it to what it needs to be, which is a very strong digital product accompanied by a newspaper product that's less pages but still has important, not duplicated. I used to call it U2, unique and unduplicated, not the band. Yeah. And uh, unique and unduplicated. That's what I've preached to our people. We're U2 all the time. That's what we care about. I like that. And uh, if he'll do that and give them a very personalized digital product that gives them the things they want. I'll just tell you a funny little story. Uh, we, through, through technology, we found that something that had a very, and generally speaking, a small audience, but an intense audience, was for SMU Sports Dallas. Southern Methodist University is located there. Our last episode, we had James Prochet oh. and Bill Armstrong. Oh, well, perfect. Well, Bill you know, was a trustee there and yeah. went to school there, and uh, as did his wife and his kids. Uh, and so, uh, but we found that... that they were like, give us more SMU sports. We'll pay almost anything because nobody was covering SMU sports. The athletic wasn't covering SMU. It wasn't a big enough deal. So so that, we then doubled the number of people we had doing SMU sports. And we got all these subscribers to sign up because this was information. If you that, build it, they'll come. If you build it, they come. And it's unique, unduplicated, and important. It's got to be important. It's got to mean something to them. It can't just be uniquely unduplicated about, you know, how to grow a, an avocado. You know, it's got to be. I think there's so many ways you can apply that U2, you yeah. know, analogy to, I mean, shoot, to what you're trying to chase in your life personally. Um, you know, what I, what I want to do with this podcast. Unique, yeah. unduplicated. Yep. Super smart. I like that. That's some good advice. Yeah. Thank you. I'm curious what happened on the path. So you retired from the Dallas Morning News as the, the top dog there in 18. Yeah, 2018, the company was called the AHB uh, Corporation. It was a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. I was, I finished, I ended there as the chairman and CEO, and I retired. But maybe anticipating where we go next, in about 2010, it was the first time I came to this area. And Really? What's the, what's, what's the office like for the CEO of the Dallas Morning News? Corner office? <laughs> Do you look the whole city like like the beginning of the show? Like, yeah, that is good. Is that playing in the elevator when you come up to your office? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> did you know? Though, did you know who shot Jr. before anyone else? No, I didn't know who shot Jr. I didn't know any of that. But uh, we actually moved from a building that we were in because we had downsized people. We didn't need the space. A beautiful historic building. Yeah. But we then relocated to what was the original Dallas Public Library, which I loved, and it had been abandoned. But we bought it, and you know, all about readings, whether it's online and so forth. So sure. it had a nice sort of symbolism, and we completely renovated it. So you leave in 2018, and then it's kind of like you're laying the foundation to find Paso. Yeah, Barbara and I went to school in Northern California, and we we went wine tasting, and we went to the Christian Brothers, and the, you know, Winnie Brothers, and Robert Mondavi, and some of these that were uh, around at the time, and uh, and then we just go out into a vineyard and have a picnic, and nobody cared. There weren't that many people there, and uh, I f- we both fell in love with wine, and for the rest of our lives up till this time we were always going wine tasting but whether it's the united states out of the united states 
And uh, I told Barbara that I said, when I retire, because I'm working for a big company, I don't own it, uh, and I'm going to have to retire. They're going to make me retire. Um, I want to start a winery. And she's like, okay, great. You know, but, <laughs> and then when the time. Then, she's like, that's so cute, Jim. Sure. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. And, and I'd bring it up from time to time and she'd say, well, that's great. And then when it was about 2010 and we were here, um, I said, you know, it's about time we started thinking about, you know, I'm going to retire here shortly. And uh, she says, you're, you're really serious. And I said, yeah, I really am. I really have been. And she said, okay, all right, I'm in. And uh, we visited some some very, very good friends of ours, in fact, who will be here tomorrow. And uh, they live in Arroyo Grande now. They lived in Cambria. And my friend said to me the second day we were there, hey, let's go do some wine tasting. And I said, Sammy, I don't want to drive five or six hours up to Napa. And he goes, you idiot. There's like 300 wineries 40 minutes from here or less. I said, Where? He said, Paso Robles. I said, eh, I didn't know. And uh, we came up here. The first place we went to was actually on the east side, uh, Roger Nichols, RN Estate. Yeah. Yeah, it was oh, the, right. fir- the first place we went to. You didn't uh, say that right. It's Roger. 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 Yeah, sorry. Roger. Okay. <laughs> Roger, if you listen to this, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Texan. I'm not very good with French. And uh, anyway, we... Or English. Or English. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's part of it. You know, IQs, they're lower. Everything's a little lower. But he was, he was your speed because he does those, those Bordeaux. Yes, he was. That, that did intrigue us. And I think it was something Sam like. But anyway, we came back there on the west side, started driving around. And Barbara and I kind of looked at each other like... How does it get any prettier than this? How could this? How could it be a better place to go do wine? And you know, we're a lot of wine places have different characters and so forth. And I won't get into what the I think of some of the others. Not me. Not just probably the best place for us. We're kind of a lower key, like lower key people enjoy places that are collaborative and and you sort of feel part of the whole. And we continue to meet like nice friendly welcoming people here in Paso and we said okay this this is where it's going to be and we uh we looked at property in uh 11 and 12 and uh finally found this place there were no trees on it there was nothing planted i don't think anything ever had been planted or grown except ground squirrels and there were thousands of them you could hear them wow you could hear them going back into their holes when you drove up it was a thundering noise and uh but we 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 love the steep hillsides we love the great breeze off the templeton gap so uh and most of all we love the limestone right bank you see it right when you drive up the hill here oh yeah it's just like feet of it there it is walls of it you got it so this was our place and uh we bought it got kevin wilkinson to be the original vineyard manager yeah good start sure yeah and we were we hired anthony cool uh, to be the winemaker a few years later after their first daughter uh ramona was born and i think hillary was feeling like she could kind of get back and do a little bit of work we asked her to take over the vineyard management keeping things all in the family right and so how did you find anthony how do you start finding you know who do you start tapping here meeting here building relationships here to kind of go hey you know you should be looking at this guy well, I really didn't know much, but I did know Bill Armstrong, uh, you know, at, at Epic, because he does spend a lot of time in Dallas, and I'd met him, and I knew that he had a winemaker that had a, somewhat of a reputation as being a really good winemaker, both from Napa Jordan. and here. Jordan. She's my winemaker crush. Uh, yeah, there I you go. I love her wines. I love Jordan. She's fantastic. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I... You had I, a lot of competition on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, I know, for sure. Yeah. Get, get in line. Like, <laughs> but I just love, I'm such a fan of her. She's such a sweet woman. Her wines are fantastic. Yeah, totally. Well, she proved all that to me because when I did ask, I asked Bill just so he didn't think I was like. Oh, see, that's interesting. I, well, I thought if I just call her up, she doesn't know me. A number one, so she could say no. Yeah. And B, if I it could get said, back to him. Yeah, she said yes, and he goes like, you know, are you trying to steal my wine? Right. Well, I didn't want to. I could start off on the wrong foot on my own real easily. I didn't need to. Really we don't want to do that in Paso for sure. No. So, so we went to lunch, and I just asked her. I said, you know, if, okay, pivotal question. If I could have anybody making my wine in Paso. Who would you say? She gave me two names. She said, if you can get either one of those people to make your wine, you'll never look back. And uh, I said, great. I then went to Kelvin Wilkinson, who I'd already hired to you know, put in the vineyard. And I asked him what he would do uh, if he were me. And he said, well, they're both great winemakers. You don't have any problem with that. But he said, one of them will spend 
more of his time being the winemaker and less of the time doing my job. And the other one will spend a lot of time, I think, doing my job as well as doing winemaking. So if you're asking the guy who's running the vineyard, Very fair. I, I'd rather have the guy that's probably not going to come in here and tell me how to farm the place. Sure. And that was Anthony. And I think we met, did we meet at the, at the, at the whole, at, at Cheval, at Cheval in yeah. their, in their kind of little. Yeah. I want to say it was no, November at 12. Of 12. Now, what was that like October. for you? Were you already busy? Or were... Well, so it was interesting because I don't even feel like I got a call from you. I think what had happened on my side was John Mitchell, who is the oh. architect at, who built Denner yeah. and has always done some work for us at Denner. He came up to me and he said, hey, I've got this new client and he's interested in building a winery. I'm looking for a winemaker to consult with me on um, you know, making sure it's functional yeah. and not just beautiful. Um, and I was like, well, that sounds like fun. I'd love to do that, you know? Um, yeah. And so John said, well, you know, we're having this meeting. Why don't you come out and meet the, the owner? And it was you and Andy. Yeah. Um, and John and Kevin okay. at Cheval. And so it was like middle of harvest, and I think it was a Sunday. Yeah. Now, do I, you go into this thinking, God, this could be a great opportunity. Don't I mess was this just up. Think, I was or are you just thinking, like, I just want to meet a person. I, I don't really care. I was thinking, how fun would it be to work on this architecture thing? Yeah. You know, because like, yeah. I, I love the, the form and the function of it and how those intertwine. And it's such, it's such a unique thing to, to artistic work, right? So wineries are beautiful. And, and concert houses are beautiful and sort of all that and, and getting to work in one of John's facilities that have, you know, some things I might change. Uh, it was sort of fun to get a, a do-over. So I didn't have a lot of pressure so much because I didn't think they were looking for a wine. They, they didn't even have vines in the ground. No, no, no. Because that was, yeah, John Mitchell designed dinner and we had hired him to design this house, which he did. But it's beautiful. He, he want, thank you. He wanted to take us over to show dinner, and Barbara fell in love with the art. She loved the architecture. So while we're there, Ron Denner comes out, and because he sees John, and he da 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 da. And then J- John did say to him, Well, you know, I think they're either thinking about, or I'm going to try to tell them to, you know, think about hiring Anthony. <sighs> wow. Ron, if, if it wasn't Ron's own son, you wouldn't know it. And B, if he he had he had him not only walking on water he was you know making the water I don't know it, right it, right right I was like gosh I was turning the water into wine afterwards <laughs> yes exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. my secrets yeah. I'm on now that's a, <laughs> thank you thank you touche so I walked out of the guy in the car with Barbara said well uh, we we know we know that Ron really likes you know his winemaker I'm you know and I guess he was sort of tacit approval to let him make the wine he he didn't. You know, I don't think he ever asked me, like, were you trying to hire him full time? I think I guess he figured that wasn't going to happen. So, yeah. anyway. What a cool story. A good story. Yeah. And then, so you've been making the wines since the beginning. Since the very beginning. So, I came on at end of December. Yeah. And Kevin had already made most of the planting decisions, but, you know, I was here when it was planted. Ironically, right about that time, my wife, Hillary, was working for Neil Roberts. And Kevin was looking for someone. And we're very close with Neil as well. And I've been... Uh, friends with Kevin from way back when he was at Tally. And so he was looking for a PCA and she had her license. And I was like, you know, why don't you guys meet? And they ended up working together. And Hillary ended up farming yeah. here from the get go working for Kevin. Oh, wow. So, you know, it was it, from the get go. Yeah. Jim didn't know it, but no. like it was all in the family from the very for beginning. Yeah. We weren't even married at that time, we were just dating. God, that's right. Because I think when y'all we had a drink together at Cheval, she came too. And yeah, y'all were she was we were just, just dating. dating. Yeah. I've forgotten that. That's right. One of the things that I've heard about Anthony that's really interesting is because again he's been brought up on these pods several times throughout. But from the consulting winemaker standpoint, it's like you can find one who will make you a great bottle of wine. But when you can find one that like he can filter, maybe this is what I would do because this is the kind of wine I want to make. But he can separate that and be like, hey, well, what do you envision? What do you want to see at the end of this? And I can help you get there. Well, um, uh, he did ask me what kind of wine I wanted to make. How do you answer that? I answered him. I said, I want to make a wine that I want to drink every day. And about a year later, I said, this had come up. And I said, by the way, was there a wrong answer to your question? And he said, absolutely. I said, okay, what was the wrong answer? Just out of curiosity. He said, if you told me you want to make a 95 point wine, I wasn't going to make your wine. But when you said you want to make a wine you want to drink every day, then that's the kind of person I want to work with because it's, you know, not about a score. 
it's about the wine. Yeah. And I and I I really meant it. That's I I don't want to make so, a wine so that I don't I. like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't doubt that if I had said that, you would have said, "Gee, that was okay." Uh, let me person. get back to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Off the air, you told me who the other person was, and we're not going to say it now because we talked about the farming aspect of it. But that's an interesting take for you to be like, "Hey, I'm I'm going to do this job, and I'm not so much." I mean, you have a vineyard person. Of course, we're going to work tightly together, but it's not in my interest to tell him or her how to do their job no and that's you know that to me is the strength of a winemaker is to know where your strength is um and and i only want to work with great farmers you know if if they're not great farmers and you know yeah we we don't want to play but i mean kevin kevin's at the top of his game he was at the top of his game then and and someone that i worked with for at that point you know, four or five years already and knew I could work very well with. So that's important. And I do think you see a lot of winemakers that want to sort of toe their way into the vineyard and they don't make great wines because their focus is not, you're not, you're not letting the person that's best at their job do their job and you're not, you know, letting, well, you're one, not doing your and best one, job And it either. takes a lot of trust, right? You want to let people flourish where they belong. But then again, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe is there thinking, well, I mean, and obviously it starts in the vineyard, but um, I, if I don't have my hands on that, maybe something's going to happen and it's going to be on me or I don't know what the... You know, the, the best approach I've ever found to that is, is to give them ownership in the winemaking. And once they have ownership in the winemaking, then they start to see that. And and that's always been really a tough disconnect in in the new world in particular. Like if you if you look in France, they have winemaking consultants and and the owner of the state is the vigneron. They're the farmer and then they've hired an ecological yeah, consultant. about the winemaker over no, there. it's I mean it's all about the the family and the farm yeah. and then they have an enologist that comes in and sort of guides them through the major parts of blending and yeah. so on and so forth. So I mean it's a very different approach over there and I've always felt like if you give the people farming as much ownership in the finished product, and, and there's in California in particular, there's so much disconnect there. Um, so if you can do that, then they're going to farm as best they can and see the vision and see the finished product. And you know, and and that's not just the vineyard manager; that's the guys pruning the vines, the guys and gals harvesting. If you can get them involved on the wine side, see the whole process soup to nuts, then then everyone has ownership from the very beginning to the very end. That's a really good point. And, and, you know, I would say, because I, when I had the opportunity and the privilege of, of running, say, a company like the Dallas Morning News, when I first there, it was over 2,000 people. You have to trust the people you hire. The, the business is too big. You can't do everything. You can, you can learn. You can watch. You can observe. Uh, if you want to go run a press, you can go run a press and they'll let you. But you've got to trust the people you hire and you also learn that if you hire really good people and you let them do what they're really good at, really good things happen. I will never know a tenth of what he knows. I don't care how much time I spend and I won't know a tenth of what Hillary knows because a lot of it is almost intuitive, right? Especially and, and with so, Hillary. Like it's, it's what yeah, they were born to no, do. No, yeah. Hillary is, like, lives it. She's a third generation you know, vineyard farming person. So I've from time to time thought, well, let me come over and spend a few days in the cellar. And I still might. But I didn't want to do it at the beginning because I didn't want to start trying to think I could second guess Anthony or I could second guess Hillary. I want them to just tell me what they're doing and help me so I understand it. It's smart leadership. A CEO question for you. What's smarter, a smarter hire or a smarter fire? If it's a fire, it means you've done it as fast as is fair to do it. Too many people hang on to people for too long that they know they either they're not fitting in they don't have the right skill set they don't have the they're not they're not a good fit in the culture any of those things but they hang on too long and they don't sort of make that happen bite the bullet yeah but far more important is the right hire um you know if you if you can make the right hire um that person will do you know magic and I've seen it so many times and I would hire those people back you know for anything I was doing that they were skilled at doing had the ability to do why the name six mile bridge Jim well as I maybe talked about earlier but six mile bridge is a little town in county Clare Ireland from whence my great great grandfather uh emigrated and he had a two-year-old with him named James Maroney. His name was Jacobus Maroney, kind of James in the old language. Uh, uh, James Maroney. And I've just always had a, uh, 
you know, sort of the family affinity to it, but I love the name Six Mile Bridge. It just evoked to me sort of an interesting, could be almost anything, kind of a, you know, I mean, a little magic in that name, Six Mile Bridge. I just liked it. Mm-hmm. So I told Barbara, the only thing I knew about when we eventually would do a winery, and I'm just 30, 40 years ago, I said, it's going to be called Six Mile Bridge. That's all I can tell you. I don't know anything else about it, but it's going to be called Six Mile Bridge. And so we did. So when you started talking to Anthony and you're like, I want to make wines that I love to drink, did you know that you wanted to be a Bordeaux house then? Oh, yeah. I don't mean from the very beginning, I wanted to be uh, a Bordeaux house because the wines Barbara and I really liked to, to drink. That's kind of is our dating and or marriage and so forth. <laughs> I did say to Anthony, I said, now, Anthony, now, you know, one of the things I really like about some of the Bordeaux wines, they're about 12 and a half, 13% alcohol. So, you know, I wanted, I, I don't want big alcohol wines. And he goes, well, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> not, not maybe so much about the alcohol, but he said, you're not going to have a 12 and a half or 13% wine off this site in Paso Robles. And, you know, idiot me, I didn't understand. I thought if you want to make a 12 and a half percent wine, you can make it anywhere you want to. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, God, well, hmm. And I said, well, okay, all right, we'll, we'll just stick with the program. We'll just do whatever you think is the right and best thing to do, and let's make some Bordeaux blends, and let's, you know, see what we can do. And, Was it about kind of helping him understand, like, well, look, if they're balanced, that's maybe what you're looking for, but... It, it was almost more like, and we'd sat down before we even made one, one drop of wine, and I had Jim send out. Uh, some of his favorite bottles of wine from, and I was like, I don't care where, what grape it's made from, where it's made. Send me bottles of wine that you would drink every day. And then my that's assistant- a smart idea to get a case of wine. Well, didn't think yeah, yeah. about that. That's what that was all about. Wonder if he still has some of those. He put oh, them yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Come on, you're giving all my secrets away. Uh, so then I had my assistant winemaker at the time grab a couple local bottles and throw them in, and then we mixed them in. So we didn't know what we were tasting. We tasted them all blind together, and it was Hillary and Kevin yeah. and you and me and Jenny and Andy. I Andy, think. yeah, Andy was here. Andy and, is is a lawyer, consigliere, or whatever, and he's helped me with all the you know kind of legal and financial things going through. He's a CPA too, so that he was up here a lot. You hear Andy? That's who yeah, he was. okay, and and great friend, and, and oh, more best, and best friend, okay, yeah, cool. best friend. And we tried all these wines blind, and just you know, I everyone talked about them and what you like about them, and some of the wines that you thought you liked, maybe you didn't like as much, and, and it really gave me sort of a good guidance of where we were going to go flavor-wise with it once I saw what what Jim was really hitting on. What I can do and the way I approach Jim when he's like, I want to make these wines that are 12 to 13% alcohol. I'm like, I I can't do it in that alcohol content because we have so much more heat accumulation, so much more sunshine uh, than the left bank of Bordeaux. But I can make wines that taste like that, that have those savory elements that are not quite so fruit forward, that have good herbaceousness to them, that are still very balanced and and don't, you know, they're they're not going to taste like the 17% alcohol fruit bomb. Well, it was also the time, I think, not the very beginning, but we're not still in that sort of Napa turn where it was big fruit forward wines. And I didn't like those. And I associated that with higher alcohol content. Wrongly so. Some people associate that or they had it before with Paso. That, that's true. Anyway, we <laughs> I brought three or four bottles of wine I really like. We put the bags on them. Everybody brought wines, put the bags on. We taste to all these places, at least eight or nine wines, right? And then we, you know, ranked which was our favorite. So mine was, you know, number seven, whatever. And when they took it off, it was, I'm not making this up. It was the Mother of Exiles Bordeaux Blend from dinner. Even with the wines I brought, there were some of my favorite Bordeaux, some Malbec, Cabernet blends from uh, Mendoza. I mean, and I was like, I, I, it's almost like the fix was in, but it, it was a random, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, well, you know, this is, this is meant to be. This is meant to be. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was fun. What was it like kind of setting things up, setting up shop here, kind of right as a, the Rhone explosion kind of was, you know, either in full swing or certainly <laughs> there were the reverberations of it? Well, you know... What was that look about? I wonder if, I was a, about. if I was a better, you know, purely businessman, um, I think that I would come in here and make Rhone wines because they were, they were on the ascension. They were, everybody was talking about them. They are really good wines, by the way. But back to I want to drink what I like to drink every day. And I wasn't a Rhone 
wine drinker. I've become one since I've been here and drank all these wonderful Rhone-based wines, but it would have been counter to what I told him. And so I just said, the hell with what you're supposed to do. I want to do what I think we're going to enjoy drinking every day. And that's well, that grow here. I mean, that's the thing about Paso. You can grow Almost 40, anything. 50 different yeah. varietals to a world-class level. Yeah. Will you ever make a Rhone? <laughs> That's where the is Rosie is. gone. Wait, okay. <laughs> she want you no. to? Um, we will plant. Um, so we're breaking news right now. Breaking news um, because of the, everything up here and beginning to learn these wines, and I kept gravitating towards one of Anthony's two flagship wines, and it was the one with the most Grenache in it. So then I started tasting other wines here that had a heavier blend of Grenache than they did Mouvet or Syrah or whatever else they're putting in. And then Anthony started introducing me to Chateauneuf, which, of course, again, no. And I just realized, I looked at Barbara and I said, I really like Grenache. So we may plant a little Grenache <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? next year or a year after one of the two because uh, I think it's a beautiful grape. I mean, the fruit is just, it's, it's elegant. It reminds me a little of Merlot, you know, in that, yeah. in that the tannins, the elegance, uh, the softness, yet with, you know, a good fruit it's profile. Pretty. And it's pretty. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. So, yes, that's breaking news. Look at that, Jim Maroney. Well, Thanks I, for doing it on the Where Wine Things I, podcast. I think, I think <laughs> the other thing was your trip to Priorat, you yes. know, and, and, and that's where the Rhone and Bordeaux sort of come together. Yeah. Really, the only region other than maybe Paso yeah, where, you, right. where you see those, those varieties, Cabernet and Grenache and Merlot, Carignan playing together. Talking Spain, right? Spain, and yeah, and it's like Spain. literally the, the wine is growing out of like these black rocks. Yeah. Yes. It's pretty incredible. Volcanic stuff. But I'll tell you too, what's, what's just, it was so wonderful there too. The people were like the people here. No rules. I want to make wine. I want to make the way I want to make. I don't care about designations and all these things from the government or the, or the wine association. And these were people that fought to get their lands back from the Franco era when they all got expropriated and turned into, you know, beans and sorghums and potatoes for the, for the masses with, during the war. And it took them, everyone would tell us, had a story of 10, 15 years to get their land back. And then when they got it back, it was the next generation of people. And they were so in love with the, with the land, with the terroir, and so excited about it. And they were making some just killer wines and as anthony said there was grenache i guess right mm-hmm. and and then you'd find some cab and some other things but they didn't they just they were making great wine they didn't care about rules about history or anything i loved it and it reminded me of people here these these are independent people here as you know i mean they they're going to make the wine they want to make and they're it doesn't matter about docg or you know what bordeaux tells you can and can't grow i mean that's that's why they're here. Let me back up a little, yeah. Adam, because when this property came up for sale, Hillary and I looked at it. It was out of our price range, but this was kind of the concept of what we wanted to do for the Royal Nonsuch Farm. So we'd walk this. You know, we hopped the fence and walked the whole property and looked at it. And like in my mind, I'm like, Grenache is there, and Syrah is there, and Morved's there. And then I end up meeting Jim, who's who's bought it. I didn't even know this was a property when I when I mm-hmm. met him. And I'm like, what what are you what are you gonna plant? And like my heart broke a little bit. <laughs> when he was like. <laughs> Especially when you mentioned Zinn. <laughs> but all five Bordeaux, Sauv Blanc, and Zinn. And I just, I've always, like, this property has, I think is going to be a special spot, especially for Grenache, which is my favorite grape. So I'm very excited to get to work with some Grenache up here down the road. So you find out, uh, what was that day like? You're like, oh my God, I think I think we're going to be able to get some Grenache here. Oh, it's, it, it would be almost as good as us grafting over the Zinn. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've had a little side moment with Hillary, and she goes, "We're not pulling that out. I like it." Too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I've got. Vetoed. Why are you guys ganging up? No, on if me? I got Hillary on my side, it's game over. Yeah, let's right. just let's just start right there. What do you like about Paso? I love I love the I love the place. It's beautiful. The people, they are warm, friendly, collaborative, helpful, and. They are genuine. They're authentic. These I meet so many authentic people here who they are who they are. They're not trying to be somebody else or try to act a certain way. They just they're comfortable in their own skin. And I think that is that is so hard to find. I think that's what Barbara and I both love about it. It it starts with the people and sort of the culture that we feel we've found here. I'm not saying it's everywhere, but 
that's what we love. Yeah, that's pretty cool. One one of my favorite favorite all time you know dinner parties up here, which has happened many times, <laughs> is we get the cherries from Via Creek, Chris and Joanna, yeah. just down the road, and Hillary and I, Jim and Barbara, and Dave Bailey. I mean, you just couldn't have more authentic, more different. You got about three or four generations of people. Dave yep. shows up with a bottle of Jose Cuervo and a bag of weed. Yeah, um, yep. I love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Jim pulls out old Bordeaux and Chris has got God know what from, from Chateauneuf or White Burger. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just like you couldn't have more different people with more different backgrounds that all are passionate about this place and about making great wines or farming great vineyards. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's not just Paso. That's especially this neighborhood here at the top of Peachy Canyon. Yeah. So you brought a 16 and that just shows how, you know, the ageability of the wines that it's still a baby, huh? Anthony's made. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, it's got plenty of time. Yeah. Yeah. But it was still fun to kind of put it next to the 18. Yeah. That was really neat. And then, um, what is this white that you just opened up, Anthony? Uh, so this is Claret Blanche. Uh, so this is a, we have about a third of an acre of this Hillary and I at our house. We make. 50, 75 cases of 100% Claret Blanche uh, from, from our place under the Royal Nonsuch label. So uh, I love Claret. It's, it's like a blank canvas. You know, it, it doesn't, ha- it's not like Viognier where it's got a, an identity that you've kind of got to play to. It lets you be a farmer and express it in farming and lets you be a winemaker and kind of decide what direction you want to go with What it. direction did you take it here? So I, I love, my, my favorite wines are the wines in uh, Burgundy, specifically the white wines. So I'm a huge fan of Saint-Aubin, Chasson Montrachet, Merceau, even Chablis in the north. Um, so I wanted to sort of take that concept and say, can we take a Mediterranean grape in Claret Blanche and make it have that sort of flinty, reductive elements that you get from white burgundy with still fantastic acidity and good mid-palate. So we pick really lean. We do skin contact. We actually basket press, which is very weird for whites. Typically, you'll put it in a bladder press because it's just an easier extractor, but you get a lot more phenolic extraction from the basket really press. really want that, that I want more, tannin. I want tannin. I want solids, and that's what helps give How long on the skins in the beginning? Just, uh, this is like 24 hours. Okay. Uh, I don't want any color. I just want that, I want that tannin pickup. You don't want an orange wine or anything, no. but you want just a little bit of those white tannins. Yeah, and then we, we ferment it in 50% new French oak, and it ages for 22 months. So it actually ages more like a red wine, uh, and that's what helps take those sort of tannins from drying and bitter to round, rich, neutral palate, uh, 50% new, 50% neutral. Cool. Uh, and then it's bottled on fine unfiltered. So it's kind of more like a red wine in, in the winemaking as opposed to traditional white wine. Beautiful. Yeah. That's really cool. That I didn't know that Claret was kind of like that. I like how you said like that blank palate. It's, I mean, I can't tell do... you people ask me, well, what's the character? I'm like, whatever you want it to be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not an aromatic grape. So, you know, we Chardonnay find, like that kind of? Chardonnay's got a little more aromatics to it. But it could be very versatile, right? It can be super versatile. But like what's interesting, Chardonnay, you know, it's, it's continental in its origin. So it's, you know, it's temperamental. It's got these thin skins. It oxidizes very easy, which is why you can get those nutty components out yeah. of it. Uh, the Mediterranean grapes are like bomb proof. You know, like I could go a year without <laughs> sulfuring this and it be fresh. Yeah. You know, whereas like the Chardonnay minute ferments over, it's like, hmm, it's getting a little tired, <laughs> you know, give it a little life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Make sure that cellar's cold. Right. Uh, whereas he's like, I ferment this shit in the parking lot. I mean, yeah. it's like, <laughs> the hotter the better. Um, you know, it's it, they're just different beasts. Oh. I, I One of my favorite winemakers is a guy in South Africa, uh, Ibn Saadi, and he's, you know, before he started his own project, he traveled the world making wine. And he, you know, he's got a very interesting approach to it. And I, I kind of take the same approach in that Rhone grapes, Mediterranean grapes, they're, they're Benjamin buttons, right? So like they're born old and you've got to make them young. Uh, whereas the continental grapes are sort of the opposite. So so it's all about, you know, you got to keep that freshness in them and how do you find it? And, you know, a lot of times they can get picked too ripe and they get over the top, but where is your uh, favorite place to eat in Paso? Where are some of the places that you've tried? Oh God. And you love, Oh well, I mean, I'm going to leave one out and get somebody pissed, but uh, we love your cortile. We sure. we uh, we love uh, Buena Tavolo. We love uh, La Cosecha. 
better than the Petit Canai in the last Oh, couple Petit Canai, great. We're going to try In Bloom, by the way. That's right. It's new. Tomorrow. Oh, really? Yeah, we, we did a, a, a Chris Cherry wine tasting there before Ooh, open, nice. right, uh, with food. But uh, we're going to go tomorrow night for our first time. I'll and, text and, you and, and tell me how it is. I think is, I have never had a bad meal there. Yeah. And I've never had a bad meal at any of these places I just mentioned. They're all... We're really lucky good. that the yeah. game here has and, been and lifted. And, and you know, in Bio Brasere, I still like it. It was the first place I had lunch at here. And I still, yeah. you know, I think they do a, a very consistently good, you know, job. And I, I, I enjoy They're having They're great dinner. French pizza. They've been here forever. Yeah, yeah. And if I go to lunch, it's almost always uh, Thomas Hill Organics. I just like going, sitting there and having a nice lunch. We, yeah. ju- we just turned Jim on to Finca. Oh, yeah. you, oh they were on a podcast, the last podcast. Oh, good. I think I went there Diego's four awesome. times oh, in five days. Yeah. What did you get? What are you into there? <laughs> I've been into their tacos. The, I just, the, just yeah, the duck al pastor, the oh, oysters. Yeah. Have I, you done the, the salmon ceviche special? No. Oh. I heard that in the, I got to get the nachos next time. They're like, the nachos are really? killer. And then I heard they just do a simple bean and cheese burrito. I've not that, like, that. That like every winemaker is just like all about. And I'll take ordering. the duck pastor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does sound so good. The duck al pastor was so good. No, so I, yeah, I love, I, I, like I said, I think I went. Three times in or four times in five days, and the people there said, "You have a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got a problem. <laughs> I think, exactly." I think between Hillary and I, like I look at the credit card statement, and someone's there three days a week. Yeah. between between the two of us. Yeah, they were really really cool to meet. The day we went to do the show, they were closed, so we couldn't really taste the kitchen. So we went there the Friday before, yeah, and just ate a bunch of stuff, and it was just fantastic. The service, the story, Diego, CC, and then the parents. The whole the whole story is really 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 good. Yeah. yeah. So if you're listening now, you didn't hear the last episode. And we also had on uh, Julie and Justin from uh, Paso Wine Merchant. Oh, awesome. Great, great folks, great spot. Yeah, totally. And I'll, I'll give a plug to In Bloom because I have now eaten at In Bloom four times. Really? Between. Since they've actually opened open? No, oh. only once since they've opened. But we did three winemaker dinners because uh, we did Chris's with you guys. Mm-hmm. Then we did our own for Royal Nunsuch and Canero. And then we did uh, we did a dinner dinner. And all three of those menus were different. And then uh, Chris Hayes, Heisma, the mm-hmm. owner, invited us out for... Um, Sort of the soft opening, and we we ate the whole menu. We had a big enough group to just like wow. ordered right, ordered one of everything. So and- what's more fun as a winemaker, Anthony? Is it to just do these winemaker dinners and just like you live your best life, or is it to have prospective clients sending you cases of wine to <laughs> quote try? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Um, it's a little throwback. Hillary and I had dinner at the wine merchant, on, or not at the wine merchant, but at the market walk on Wednesday, and we were hooking up with our old old friends Tom and Claire Fondero, and Tom was yeah. the founding chef at Via Creek, Via Creek sure. restaurant. Uh-huh. And I mean, I worked for Chris and Joanne at Via Creek and, and Tom has become one of my best friends. And when you know the restaurant closed and Tom, he still lives up here in Paso, but he moved down to be Slowbrew Rock executive chef and yeah. that all program. Like we just fell off the face of the earth. Like he's got older kids. We've got young kids. I think the last time I saw both of them was like three weeks after Ramona was born and she was six. Uh-huh. So we, uh-huh. we had the ramen, uh, Mateo's ramen there at the at the market walk and it was a Wednesday night which is like you know industry night at the merchant yeah, yeah, yeah. and everybody walked by was like hey hey how's it going? you know like you had to talk to everyone I'm like yeah it's a high school what, reunion you know, yeah you know what the best thing would have been to been Tom who no one recognized yeah. Yeah. you know I'm like sometimes in this town you just want to have a meal with the people you're having a meal with and like no one knows you yeah you know so it, it's a lot of fun to be anonymous yeah, but Anthony Young ain't walking around Paso anonymous it's, anymore. It's a, it's no. a lot of fun to know so many people too. I mean, it, as you we said, live the in a community, great place. Yeah. you know, everyone you're excited. Have, I saw half the Six Mile Bridge team there. Yeah. Cassidy was Cassidy there, and Tisha was there with her. With I her know husband. Rosie was here. That's awesome. I love yeah, Rosie. Yeah, yeah. I, we are so lucky. We have such a wonderful tasting room. Yeah. You know, group led by Rosie. It's great. Good really, for you. Really How can people uh, learn about the wines more? Taste the wines. So um, to learn about the wines, uh, it would be to come to the tasting room. And, and taste the wines there. We have, uh, you know, sixmilebridge.com. I don't know if there's another website in the area that gives as much information, good information. Oh, you. you know, if you want to learn about the vineyard blocks and what they are, what wines they go into. I mean, there, there's just great information. It's obviously someone that's done it before. Yeah. yeah. Oh, know. I can't wait to Thank check you. it out. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's very nice. And, and so, yeah, you can go learn a lot about us there. We have, we're in this very fortunate place. We don't make a whole lot of wine. But we are selling out all of our wine, and so we're, we have to limit the amount we sell in the taste room. We have to limit the amount we release, how much a person can buy, so that we have enough wine to make it to the next vintage. We're really managing the inventory. Is that tough? Give a shout-out to a group called Mather, which is a, a group I also worked with in my previous career. 
and they are constantly evaluating all of our data sales and so forth and giving me depletion curves to tell me when is the wine going to run out unless you either raise the price or limit the number of bottles you sell. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it's, and, and they're, it's Who's doing that? That's incredible. called Mather Economics, and it's all data. There's no, there's not like, well, you know, we think, we feel, it's just data. It's, it's, it's unemotional data. How much of what you did before was really helpful and are helpful tools beyond the leadership the, the, to what you're doing now? It's, it's this pricing. We were, yeah. we were pricing the newspaper. We were pricing the website and understanding what people were willing to pay. And by the way, I say this now that I'm not doing it anymore. We would probably make the airlines blush. We probably had 27 different prices for the Dallas Morning News delivered to 20 different segments of people. So you could find a friend of yours somewhere else with a different where he lives, socioeconomic profile, and find out you might be paying twice as much as he was for the newspaper. You know, it was just math, though. When did it that worked. change? That's so interesting. Well, the newspaper companies that are smart are doing it. Yeah. The day. And it's just, it's just data. And I get geeky here, but the elasticity, how much somebody will pay before they will give something up is a, is, it, it's so fascinating. Netflix is testing me on that all there the time. There you go. No, and they all are. They just they did, did it four uh, weeks ago. Sirius yeah. XM. You know, Sirius XM. Don't even get me started on that. The, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, totally. I'm, I'm a know, sucker to them, uh, too. What you should have is like 10 different email addresses so they don't know you're the same person <laughs> all the time. So Because once they start learning who you are and what you do and that you're, you love their site because you're on it all the time, you're buying, you know, you're getting films. <laughs> Trust me. We're going to say, hey, yeah, what's, you know, our price just went up. And, yeah. and they, oh, yeah. they know that the chances of you canceling are very, very slim. What was that line you said? How far can you push somebody before they say no and they quit? And you don't want to get too close to that line, but you want to move your way up there. And you may not want to jump it all at once, but you know you've got this headroom. And you just, you'd say, well, you're going to get people mad if they love it and they think the value is there, they're willing to pay for it. You may be undercharging them for what they consider to be the value of this product. And they're happy for that, but they're not unhappy when they finally say, well, you finally wise up and realize that I'd pay this for this because it's yeah, worth it to me. So true. So true. Great point. Jim Maroney, Six Mile Bridge, sixmilebridge.com. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, hanging out, doing this. I know you're only here for a couple of days, but to invite me in your home and well, thank you. have this conversation. This, did you have fun? This was a lot of fun. I, I, it was absolutely fun. You know, I, I, I actually worked in radio when I was in uh, high school and college in the summers. And I love people like you because you know how to make a conversation happen as if it was just completely natural as opposed to, okay, question number one, question number So I can tell you must be great at what you do, and it made it so easy, and I loved it. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for opening all these wines. And this 1993 Saint Emilion, yeah. that was a treat. Well, so much did, fun. It did kind of open up a little bit. Yeah. I kind of recovered go a little bit. It. This was so much fun. I got to tell you guys. Hey. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for coming out. Of course. And thank, thank you, Jim, thanks, for having me. Oh, thank you so much. This was too much fun. Yeah. Let's do it next week. Cheers. Okay. <laughs> Where wine takes you. There we go. Cheers. All right. Cheers. So give me that mm-hmm sound. We'll get by. We bounce all around till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Wow, wow, wow. Much thank yous to Jim Maroney, owner of Six Mile Bridge as well as winemaker Anthony Yunt of Six Mile Bridge, Royal Nunsuch Farm, Canero, Denner, and more. Loved the conversation. Thank you so much for the time and for the conversation and for that bottle of Cheval Blanc. Ooh, I love wines from Saint-Emilion. So it was certainly an unexpected and special surprise. Well, Wine Fest, are you ready? Paso Wine Fest is back Saturday, May 21st. At the Paso Robles Event Center, a.k.a. the fairgrounds here, where more than 95 wineries will come together to share their wines during the grand tasting. Enjoy three bands, two seminars, a selection of winemaker dinners, an artisan maker's market, food trucks, chefs, even an all-new VIP lounge. You do not want to miss this year. Paso Wine Fest weekend will be off the hook. I understand your ticket includes a $10 food voucher, two stages, Bands all day long. Guests are welcome to bring their own picnics, their blankets, chairs, the post-op, get some real estate in front of the stage, enjoy the shade, enjoy the sun, enjoy the wine. 
And new in 22, the VIP Pass. Let's go VIP, baby. Check this out. This elevated ticket grants you exclusive parking, a separate entrance, private bathroom. Ooh, bougie. I like it. The DJ lounge, delectable bites from local chefs, and taste of Paso's most exclusive wines. Go VIP, baby. Go to PasoWine.com for all the latest on Paso Wine Fest. PasoWine.com. And if you want to save 20 bucks off your ticket, you can use the promo code WWTY, WWTY for where wine takes you. You see me abbreviate the podcast that way all the time. Use the promo code WWTY and you could save 20 bucks off your ticket price. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Paso Wine. That is some great savings for folks who listen to this podcast. Again, use that promo code when you're getting your ticket, WWTY. And save 20 bucks off your ticket price. And I believe I'm actually broadcasting live from Paso Wine Fest on the radio, the Crush 92.5. So if you're around, make sure you come say hi. So make your plans to visit right now. And when you're making those plans, remember to log on to PasoWine.com for the latest on it all. Also follow them on Insta at Paso Wine. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer is Jen Bravo. The podcast is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. You can follow me on Instagram. I'll post stuff from these episodes, some behind-the-scenes stuff, at Adam on the Air. That's at Adam on the Air on Insta. Original music performed by Moonshiner Collective. You can follow them on Apple Music, Spotify, and learn more at moonshinercollective.com. And next time you are cruising the Central Coast, you can tune me in on your radio. My morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning. Heard weekday mornings on the Crush 92.5. You can also find the Cork Dorks there and more. We stream online, crush925.com. We even have a free app in your smartphone. Search for Crush 92.5, Crush with a K. Thank you so much for connecting with me here. I love it when you do. I am your host, Adam Montiel. Until next time, lift that glass up high. Fill it with your favorite wine, red or white. Don't forget to use that bottle to share an extra hour at table with someone you love or want to share with this week. And along the way, enjoy where wine takes you. And give me that passion, get by, we pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify and work on. Give me that moonshine, get by, we pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify and work on. Give me that moonshine, get by, we pass on down till the job is in the trees who will simplify in good company with that moonshine will get by we pass on round till the job is dry camped out in the trees who will simplify in good company